And you want the book of Micah this morning as we take a break from Galatians. We're going to do several messages on the subject of Advent. Uh, Micah is between Jonah and Nahum. I'm sure that will help you guys immensely. All right? But it is in the back of your Old Testament. The back of your Old Testament. Advent is a time of expectation and hope. Advent means arrival or coming. It prompts us to pause each week in December and remember the true meaning of Christmas. Um, we have an Advent wreath in the foyer and an Advent wreath up front. And each Sunday of Advent, if you decide to make a wreath, and it's pretty simple to do, as you can see the three red candles with the white one, basically what you do is every Sunday leading up to Christmas Day, you light a candle, and then you save the last one for the actual uh, day of Christmas or Christmas Eve. And so we'll be lighting those in the church. You may want to set up one in your home. You can run out to any kind of local store today if you'd like to do this and just set it up with a simple garland and some candles. And uh, you can light it. You can light it with your family and just be in anticipation as you light each candle of the coming of Jesus Christ. Many churches uh, honor Advent in this way, which simply means the coming of Christ. And we think about his first coming at Christmas, but we also want to honor, of course, the second coming, which we look forward to. This is a great season to renew your faith and your hope. Uh, wherever you may be in your spiritual journey right now, whether you're a new believer, whether you're checking out the claims of Christianity, whether you've been away for a while and you are thinking about hope and what life is really about, and whether the Bible's really true and Jesus is really the way, these messages are going to be focused on some of those prophetic scriptures that anticipate Jesus' coming. The first uh, title we have for you is Hope Foreshadowed. In the Bible, hope is not, I hope the Steelers win this morning, or whoever your team may be. But hope in the Bible is defined as confident expectation. Hope in the Bible, and this is both true in Hebrew and Greek, is confident expectation. Because hope in the Bible is not I hope so circumstantially, it's I know so. It's just a matter of when, not if. Amen? So hope in the Bible is faith looking forward. It's I know God's going to do this. I just don't necessarily always know how or when, but I know he is going to do it. I know Jesus came and I know he's coming again. I know he will Finish what he started in me. I know he is the God of hope. I know those who wait or hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Amen? So this is biblical hope. It is confident expectation in the God of the Bible. Not in my performance. Not in what I think you know, I can produce. But it's in God. and Namely in the promise of the Messiah. We're going to be looking at several major prophecies from the Bible. That's why I have you in the book of Micah this morning. And prophecy is really, uh, when you think about it, it is a foreshadowing or a prediction. So the Bible is filled with predictive prophecy. And predictive prophecy means that a prophet predicted a, an event, namely related most of the, the prophecies that we would think about, to the coming of the Messiah, or it could even relate to Israel or the church. But the bulk of prophecies that we think about when they're predictive in nature, 
have to do with the coming of the Messiah. And so what are the prophecies that talk about the coming of the Messiah? And when were they written? Well, two major books that we will talk about in the coming weeks are the book of Isaiah and the book of Micah. Now, both prophets wrote around 700 B.C. And a couple of big major historical markers that we all are, I think, familiar with, but I'll just remind you of, is two major events in the nation of Israel was the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. They fell to the Assyrians and the fall of the southern kingdom of Israel, the area of Jerusalem, in 586 B.C. when they fell to Babylon. So if you remember nothing else from the history or the dating, just remember those two dates. 722, the northern kingdom falls. That's where the ten tribes went up to the north. And then the southern kingdom falls in 586 B.C. So when you read like Isaiah and Micah and you read the warnings, the warnings often relate to the north, warning them of the Assyrian invasion. And here's the pipe update. Uh, yeah, sorry guys. So we actually blew a water main. So we had to shut the water off for the whole building. So we don't have toilets that flush or sinks that run. So Praise the Lord. Yeah, just so you know, <laughs> water fountains, like sinks, nothing's going to work. So bear with us. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can you turn the lights off and we'll just light candles yeah. too? Isn't that awesome? We have to rough it. Unless you have to go to the restroom. I'm sorry. Anyway, hopefully we'll, we'll work it out. Anyway, we can survive, right? All right, so we were talking about prophecy, right? That's the first time I've ever had to interrupt a sermon with a plumbing update. But, you know, hey, I mean, you get to experience pretty much everything in ministry, so there you go. So... In the books of Micah and Isaiah, the prophets are directing warnings toward the people of God with the hope that the people would repent. And if you were to categorize the problem in the north and the problem in the south, it, was really, it really boiled down to one word, and the word was idolatry. Israel just got in trouble, and the northern kingdom, because it was close to the border of Syria, the tribe of Dan ended up up there. They got influenced by a lot of paganism, a lot of idolatry. This even hit uh, Solomon and others, prominent figures. And so what ended up happening is they began to embrace the ways and the idolatry of the world. And by the way, idolatry is a very contemporary issue. We may not be bowing down to golden calves and that kind of thing, but we have our own idols in our hearts. Ezekiel warned the people that our, our idols are really stumbling blocks in our hearts. So don't disassociate the contemporary culture with idolatry. It is still the main issue. And so prophets arose. And prophets began to warn, like Micah and Isaiah, that God was going to judge and discipline his people unless they repented. And we know how stubborn the people could be, just like we can be stubborn. And so what ended up happening is that the people rebelled and God used foreign armies to bring his discipline. First in the north in 722 B.C., many of the people that were affected by the Assyrian invasion, there were people killed, people deported, and then people who ran down to the south to escape the invasion. And when they did so, guess what they brought with them? 
They brought their syncretism. Syncretism is a way of saying they combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of idols. And they brought that down into the southern part. And so that began to influence. And look, the Bible says over and over again that bad company corrupts good morals. And this is what happened to Israel. And so as they came down into the south, there were warning passages that were going out to the southern kings. There were kings in the north, kings in the south. And they were, they were basically this, God's going to judge you. It was even getting so specific that prophets were saying there's going to be a 70-year Babylonian captivity, which was fulfilled. And in 70 years, Jeremiah said this, you'll be in Babylon and you'll be under the discipline of God, but God is not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. The book of Micah, uh, and let me just back up for a second to tell you that predictive prophecy from the standpoint of evidence for the Christian faith is important because it tells you that the Bible is divine rather than human in origin. For example, Micah predicts the birthplace of Jesus as Bethlehem 700 years before Jesus is born. Just to give you an idea, that would be like someone predicting something in our modern day that was predicted in the 1300s, for example, and came to fulfillment in specific detail. That's what the Bible does. And that's what the God of the Bible does, by the way, to the false gods. He says, hey, if you're gods, then go ahead and predict the future. If you're really something other than a man-made statue or a piece or a block of wood, then predict the future. Tell us something that we don't know. And God would say to his people, why do you go after those things when they have eyes but they can't see, ears but they can't hear, you know, etc., etc., a nose but they cannot smell. So Micah's book, uh, just a quick overview, he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, uh, 750 to 731 B.C., Ahaz, 731 to 715 B.C., and Hezekiah, 715 to 686 B.C., both uh, Micah and Isaiah, just to give you kind of a general picture, are prophesying somewhere in probably the mid to early 700s BC. So that's the timing. And these prophecies are indeed miraculous. I want to show you something at the end of the book of Micah to give hope after uh, it's a prophetic book, of course, that uh, says a lot of hard things. There's a lot of challenges and warnings. Go all the way to Micah chapter 7, let me encourage you that the book ends this way. It says, who is a God like thee? And that's a play on Micah's uh, name, by the way. Who is like the Lord is what Micah's name means. And so Micah 7.18 says, who is a God like thee who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious acts or act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because... He, our God, delights in what? In unchanging love. He is a God of hesed, a God of loyal covenant love. He will again have compassion on us. Think about the history I just painted for you. He's going to have compassion on us again. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Amen. And as Corey Timboom said, Post a no fishing sign there. Thou will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham. Of course, Abraham's long gone, but this refers to the Abrahamic covenant unconditional that God made. 
which thou didst swear to our forefathers from the days of old. And you could just write in your margin there, God keeps his promises. God delights in unchanging love. This is what we call, as we study 1 Corinthians 13 together, unconditional or we would say agape love. It's a love that is not conditioned on performance. It's a love that doesn't say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll love you if you meet my criteria. No, God loved us when we were yet sinners, when we were yet enemies of God. This is the loyal love that Jesus has for us. But sadly, the people of Israel rejected that love, just as many do today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, they won't perish, they'll have everlasting life. Do you know that people who end up under condemnation will end up there because ultimately they rejected the love of Christ, which is in the love, the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that sad? That the God of the Bible expressed his love, put it on display at the cross, Romans 5, 8. He put his love on display at the cross, and yet people say, I'll get to Jesus later. I'm too busy. The Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts, but somehow we think living for now is all that really matters. Evidence, Black Friday. Now, I'm not looking at any of you specifically, but I did follow you, a few of you around on Thanksgiving night. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, but think about it. And this is just a symptom, and I'm, I'm not condemning anybody because I like a good deal just like anybody else. But look, we're just finishing the last bite of pumpkin pie if we took a little time to read a Bible verse and actually give thanks to God when the stores are opening, beckoning us to what? To another possession that we need? See, the message that is going out in American culture right now is that what's, what really matters to us is consumerism. Isn't it ironic that we have a holiday to which we're supposed to be giving thanks for what we have, but we can't get, wait to get out the door to find the next thing that we have to have? And you guys have seen the stories of people trampling each other in stores and all the nonsense that goes on. By the way, in the time that Micah wrote to Israel, consumerism and religious syncretism was huge. There, were, there was political uh, intrigue. The religious establishment was corrupt. And the nation cared more about monetary gain than they did about their soul. They showed up at the temple. They did all the right maneuverings, but their hearts were far from the Lord. That's why through Isaiah, Jesus quotes this and says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And in American culture, because I'm just like you, I have to fight this every single day. I have to fight making sure that my life is aligned with biblical priorities, that I'm living in the light of the future of the return of Jesus Christ. I don't know how many days or years I have left, but I want to live in the light of eternity because living in the light of eternity will help my priorities today. 
So I'm challenging you this Christmas season that you live in the light of the second coming. I'm not saying not to enjoy your life. I'm not saying, you know, don't have fun, all that stuff. We are such a blessed people. My wife showed me a video of a family that it was kind of a Thanksgiving thing. And each time the family, the, namely the, the dad, did something like they had breakfast. The, he, he made it sound amazing. Like, and it was all, everything was in like a, a gift box. So they cooked breakfast in the morning, and, and he was like, kids, can you believe it? We have food! And, they, and they, it was like they were looking into a Christmas gift. And then, and then he walked outside, he was going to work, and he said, can you believe it? I have a job, and, and the car was wrapped in uh, wrapping paper. And I have a car! Isn't it amazing? We have a car! Isn't it amazing? We have a house! Isn't it amazing? We have breakfast and lunch and snacks in between and dinner. And look, we have a TV, and look, we... And you start watching this and you're like, oh my goodness. I mean, I just take everything for granted. Like, yeah, I should have that. In fact, I need another one of those, another one of those, and a bigger one of those. And <laughs> Can I get a witness? Now, there's a lot of verses I could show you, but I want you to see Micah 6.8 for a second. This is just another, amidst all the things that were going on and all the verses I could show you, Here's what Micah 6.8 says. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? All the things that we're missing. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God wanted. He wanted his people to be like him. That's the goal of the Christian life, by the way. It's to be like the God that you serve. It's to be conformed into the image of Jesus, which we've been learning about in Galatians, uh, especially chapter 2, verse 20. It's no longer I who live. Paul says in Galatians 4, 19, I'm in labor until Christ is formed in you. This is the goal of the Christian life. It is not about checking into a building. It's not about, you know, saying the right words on a given day of the week. It's about transformation. The people were just mailing it in. Micah 2, 1. Take a look. Woe to those who scheme iniquity. Micah 2, 1. Who work out evil on their beds. This is what they were doing. When morning comes, they do it. For it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields. 2, 2. They seize them and houses take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Flip over to Micah 3, verse 2. It says, you hate good and love evil, who tear off the skin from them and their flesh from their bones. Verse 11, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests, these are all the leadership people, instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity won't come upon us. We won't believe those prophets. Flip over back to chapter 6, verse 11. It says, the question, can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive wheats? For the rich men of the city are, here's another symptom of their culture, are full of violence. We just had another attack. Uh, Was it in England? Another uh, terrorist attack. Uh, We quickly forget how many shootings we've had, etc. Her residents speak lies, there's deception, their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And finally, just to give you a taste of what was going on, seven, two, and three, 
The faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood, 7-2. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great man utters his evil desire. And so they scheme together. That was the culture. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? It was consumerism and religious hypocrisy and bribery at the highest echelons of political and religious leadership. And Micah said, is there any people who are genuine out there? I mean, all you got to do is watch some of the stuff going on in our nation right now to just go, oh my goodness, what, what is going on here? Everybody seems to have an agenda that's not about the good, for the most part, it seems, of the people and the nation. It seems to be about per, personal agendas, for the most part. So, you say, well, Pastor Michael, why'd you bring this up? This is a bummer. It's Christmas time. Well, I'm, I'm going to get to the good stuff. Here's a prophecy in the midst of all that sadness. You know the prophecy. Here it is. Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me, Micah 5.2, to be ruler in Israel. His, going forth, his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Often the brightest prophecies are written in the darkest times. And that's something I want to give to you this morning, that no matter how dark life can get at times, the light and hope of our Savior and our Lord and our King shines brightly. And some of the greatest prophetic scriptures, predictive prophecies that were given in the Bible, are set against the backdrop of very dark times. So there would be warnings, and the prophet would say, judgment is coming. But right in there, there would be another layer of hope given to the nation. That God's not going to give up on you. He may discipline you. He may let you live with the consequences of your decisions, but he delights in unchanging love. Amen. Amen. He made a covenant uh, to Abraham. It was unconditional. It was dependent upon God and God alone. And he will be true to that covenant. But it doesn't mean that God's love doesn't include discipline and letting his people live with the consequences of their decisions. And so a, another prophecy I want to show you, and we'll develop both of these as we uh, jump into some of the text here. It's in Micah 4.8. This is less known, but it says this. As for you, you'll notice Micah 5.2 starts as for you, and Micah 4.8 has the same as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. This particular uh, prophecy is an interesting one, and there's, there's a little division in terms of the conclusions that you come to on this one. But the tower of the flock is called in Hebrew, Migdal Eder. It's M-I-G-D-A-L-E-D-E-R. Migdal Eder. Let's put up the first slide, if you would, Sumi. So Migdal Eder is a tower which many scholars believe was originally a watchtower, 
probably on a, a hill which would have been maybe on the edge of town. And this is the ruins you can see from one uh, a photo from the 1930s. This is an example of uh, what a watchtower would have looked like. Now, the specific one that we saw in Micah 4.8 is called the Tower of the Flock. And what happened was shepherds would use these towers to watch over their flocks. And what they would do is they would watch over their flocks from the elevated position, and they would also watch for any predators that might come into the flock. So it gave them a different vantage point. There are some that comment on these towers that used by shepherds that what they would do specifically, and let's go to the next slide, and this will give you a little better picture. This is kind of a, a modern example of it, is they would go to the top of the tower and uh, they would light a fire every time an approved sacrificial lamb was investigated below. So here's what would happen. We know that there were shepherds out in the field at night when Jesus' birth is announced, and they're told where to go. There are many, including Alfred, uh, Alfred Edersheim, who wrote The Life and Times of the Messiah, Jesus, who believes that this particular tower of the flock was being used by the shepherds that received the angelic message of the birth of Jesus. And that they had a specialized duty as shepherds. They were special shepherds who, uh, remember, Bethlehem is just five miles south of Jerusalem. They were responsible for uh, providing sacrificial lambs in the temple in Jerusalem. What they would do is they would when the lambs were born, they would investigate the lambs. They would see if they had any spot or blemish possibly happening in that lower level. And each time they had one without spot or blemish, they would light a fire on top that could be seen in Jerusalem and say, we have another approved lamb. Now, part of what, uh, in doing some research on this, and I've, I've looked at this uh, on several occasions, is that they say that they would take priestly garment strips and when the lambs were born, to try to keep them from, just like a newborn baby, to try to keep it from scratching itself, etc., they would bind the, the lambs in the strips, the priestly garments, so that the lamb would not hurt itself. And it would, be, it would remain without spot or blemish. This is what many believe is Migdal Adair, the tower of the flock. Now I'm going to show you a verse that will give us a little bit more about the location. It's in Genesis 35. So hold your place in Micah. Let's go over to Genesis 35. I'm going to have to paint with some uh, very broad brushes here, uh, but I'll show you just an example. So this is early, in the, obviously, in the life of the nation of Israel. You have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, who gets renamed Israel in Genesis 35. Now, Skip down to verse 16. It says, uh, Genesis 35, 16, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, now we know that Bethlehem Ephratha is the full name of the location of Jesus' birth. Rachel, by the way, Rachel in uh, Genesis 29, 9 was a shepherdess, and Rachel's name, interestingly enough, means ewe lamb, or a female sheep. So when she first met Jacob, she was coming with the flock to the well. That's where Jacob first met her, and he cried when he saw her, and he talked about the family relationship. She was a shepherdess. So notice what happens. 
She began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. Just a side note, you have a soul that departs when you die. Genesis 35, 18, that she named him Ben-Oni. Ben means son. Oni means sorrow. Son of my sorrow. Obviously, she's going to die in childbirth. But his father, that is Jacob, called him Ben-Jamin, which means son of my right hand. Now, Bible students, think with me. The child Benjamin will be known, first he was known as son of sorrow, but then he will be known as son of my right hand. Remind you of anybody? Because Jesus in Isaiah 53.3 was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and that was written before 700 years before he came. But he's also known as the son of my right hand because today, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 12.2, he sits where? At the right hand of the majesty on high, or you could say at the right hand of the father. He's the son of my right hand, but he will also be a son of sorrows. Interesting. So Rachel died, sadly, and was buried on the way to Aphrath, that is Bethlehem. Uh, you might want to write in your margin Genesis 45-7 where uh, Jacob recounts what happened. And Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. By the way, there is a location in Bethlehem today that you can visit. I don't have a photo of it. But you can visit the location in Bethlehem that is Rachel's tomb. Uh, it's in an area that there is some violence and struggle uh, between Palestinians and Jews. And so uh, it, it's, it's kind of a, it's a tough area. But anyway, there is Rachel's tomb is there. And he set up a pillar over her grave, the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day, says Micah. Then Israel, that's his new name, journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond what? The Tower of Eder. That's Migdal Eder. We do know the tower was close to Afratha or close to Bethlehem. And it was originally located on the outskirts of Bethlehem associated with the death of Rachel. So this amazing prophecy uh, accompanying the burial of Rachel, uh, those in Israel would say that Rachel will always be identified as the mother of the sheep or the matriarch of Israel. And it is interesting because in Matthew 2, and you don't have to turn there because we're on limited time, in Matthew 2, when the Magi arrive, remember they begin to inquire about the Christ child. And uh, they come into Jerusalem and Herod has to ask the religious experts, where's the Christ supposed to be born? And so they read the prophecy from Micah, and they say, oh, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem, Afratha. You can uh, just write down for your notes, Matthew 2, 6 through 8. You guys are familiar with it. So they're warned to go another way, not to return to Herod. Herod says, when you find the child, let me know, because I want to worship him too. And everybody says, liar, liar, pants on fire. Herod didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. So when he realized he was tricked and the Magi went another way, Magi, uh, Herod put out the edict that all the baby boys in uh, Bethlehem, two years and under, because he tried to ascertain the timing of things, should die. And here's what the Bible says in Matthew 2, 16. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its environs. 
from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, listen, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Now that's a quotation from Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17, and Jeremiah is writing also to the nation of Israel, telling them that God is going to work again, but you're going to have to endure this season of tears. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. So this is interesting because in Rachel's death and this tower and everything is the prediction of the coming of the Messiah. There's more to come, but just let me talk about Rachel just for a second. Rachel's tears, uh, the loss of the babies. Some may read this story and say, well, yeah, but I remember that God warned Joseph in a dream and so he went to Egypt and he got out of there. Why did God spare Jesus and let all those babies die in Bethlehem? Oh, God did not spare Jesus. He didn't spare him. You know, sometimes the, the critics of the Bible and the cynics say, oh yeah, he got his son out of there, but all the other babies died. Was this to fulfill some prophecy just to make the Messiah look good? Actually, this was a foreshadowing that the Messiah was going to die, but in the timing and way that God would desire, Jesus would die on a cross some years later in God's perfect fulfillment. Amen? That's what the Bible teaches. Now, this tower, what do we make of it? Is it a prophecy about Christmas? All right, let's turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Let's take a look. So, I don't want to ruin your Christmas uh, decorations. However, it's unlikely that Jesus was born in December. There, there's a debate, some evidence for, some against. Let me just say, it could be, but it could also be that Jesus was born during a major feast day. And part of the reason that I believe that, like the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, was because on the major feast days, what happened is people, three times a year, all able-bodied Jewish males had to come to Jerusalem to worship the king. And they were supposed to come there. And so everything got filled up. And when Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem because of the taxation by Caesar and everything, and they end up in Bethlehem, what, what happens? There's no room in the inn. Now, our modern translations say in the inn, but if you read a little bit more on this, scholars will tell you that it's very unlikely that there was a commercial inn in Bethlehem. And the language in Luke, that there was no room in the inn, let's take a look together, Luke 2. Um, it says 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So the New Living Translation says there was no lodging place for them. So just stick with me for a second, just so you understand what I'm saying. It's unlikely they went to an ancient hotel and there was no more room. Everybody in this culture was expected at the feast days to open their home to travelers. This was 
kind of a, a customary hospitality that was expected of you, especially during feast days. Now, it could be that you opened up your family, uh, your home to your family, to family members, cousins, and, and so forth. But it, it was also expected that if a traveler came and knocked on your door, that you would open up your home as best you could for people coming for the feast. So it may just be that Mary and Joseph just couldn't find a lodging place because it was a major feast day with perhaps over a million people in Jerusalem and there was just nowhere to stay. So where did they go? Well, some people believe they ended up in a stable, in a home. Some people believe they ended up in a cave. But there's a portion of scholarship, and I want to say this, not everybody agrees, but there's a portion of scholarship that believes, if you can throw the tower back up there, that Jesus ended up in this tower where little spotless lambs were wrapped in swaddling cloths and approved for sacrifice in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't it be just like God to hide a little prophecy in the book of Micah, maybe not as well known as Micah 5.2, to tell us that Jesus actually ended up in a place where lambs were wrapped in swaddling cloths and approved without blemish and without spot to die in the temple. Wouldn't that be just like our God? And when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to the Jordan River, John says, behold, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't have to convince you that the lamb imagery is all over our Bible. Could it be that God had Joseph and Mary end up on the outskirts of town in this tower used by shepherds and that he was birthed in a place where maybe, if we can go to the next photo, where there was a sunken in, more like a sunken in major, manger, something like this where animals would feed and maybe this is where uh, the, the lambs and sheep were taken care of and he was laid in something like this that might have been inside or uh, kind of creviced into the ground and he ended up in a manger. We don't have a lot of detail from the book of Luke, but we do know that there's an interesting prophecy in Micah 4.8 and if you do some research on this, you'll find a lot of people who believe that Megdel Eder is the actual birth site of Jesus. That blows up a lot of traditional locations like the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem and other things and I'm not here to rock the boat. Well, yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm only here to say, just think about it. Just kind of put it into your lens of Christmas prophecies and uh, consider that maybe this is what God did. The shepherds that were watching over their flocks by night is interesting because it says in the same region, Luke 2.8, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, these watching over their flocks. Were they the special shepherds? And the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened, but the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby... Wrapped in cloths, that's not unusual. But what is unusual is you'll find him lying where? In a manger. And so we know that later on they, the shepherds hurried 
It says, uh, when they had seen this, they made known the statement, 17, which had been told them about the child. All who heard it wondered at the, the things which were told them by the shepherds. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as they had been told. They came in a hurry, 16. They found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. We often say in the Christmas story, how did they know where to go? Did the angel give them a map? (laughs) Did they have GPS and their shepherd staffs? No. Could it be that they already had an idea of the location? And it all fit together and and the dots were connected. It's interesting, isn't it? All right, I'm going to take you to the other Christmas prophecy, Micah 5.2. And we'll just spend our last, we have about eight minutes. So let's go back to Micah and we're going to look at Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephratha. uh, Obviously, it was a place... Not really considered. In fact, one scholar says when Joshua divided the land, Bethlehem, uh, of 115 cities that are named there and towns, Bethlehem's not even named. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Micah 5, 2, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of old, or from ancient days, ESV, or from the days of eternity. Who is this one to be born in Bethlehem in a dark time? Well, he will arrive on that Christmas night to save Israel from their sins. What sins? The sins of rebellion, the sins of idolatry, the sins of rejection of the love of God. And he will come and live the perfect life that we could never live and die. And his origins are from the days of eternity. This particular reference, you can write down Habakkuk 1.12. Habakkuk says, Are thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God? From everlasting, Psalm 90 verse 2, to everlasting, you are God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And when Jesus came into the world, He was the one from ancient times. He was the God of eternity coming on a rescue mission to save us. Do you know how much God loves us? God himself cloaked himself in human flesh and became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Micah, not a famous book, maybe not a book that you've even read before, two incredible prophecies. Think about it. If you combined Isaiah with Micah, you have... Uh, that Jesus will be born of a virgin. It will talk about what he will do, that the government will rest on his shoulders. Uh, It talks about uh, being born of a virgin is pretty major, right? And it gives the exact location of his birth 700 years before it happened. And God uses, among all things, taxes to get him to Bethlehem. (laughs) That's why Mary and Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. So, but it was to fulfill prophecy, amen? That he, the hope of the world, would come to save us. And so this is what happens, and I'll have you turn all the way to Matthew 2, and we'll wind it down. So the Magi come, and of course Jesus has now been born, 
And the Magi come looking for him. He's probably uh, perhaps a toddler at this point. And it says, and gathering together all the chief priests. So they come, they, they say, we've seen the star in the east, Matthew 2. We've come to worship him. Herod's troubled. Everybody's troubled because when Herod's troubled, everybody's troubled. Gathering together all the chief priests, Matthew 2, 4, and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, that's the Christ, was to be born. And they said to him, they knew the prophecy, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I was reading a, a scholar this week who said that that quote is a combination of Micah 5.2 and Micah 5.4, and that is a passage I'm going to take us back to at the very, very end for our communion time, which we are going to take together. But they quote the scripture. They know the scripture. And then he, uh, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Did they go to Bethlehem? Did they say, oh, uh, if, if the Messiah has arrived and these guys from the east have ended up here, and by the way, the only reason they ended up there most likely is because Daniel ended up in Babylonian captivity. And Daniel was able to pass on the faith and live out the faith. And that's probably how the Magi from the east even learned about the Christ. And they came and they saw the star. But why didn't the religious leaders go and investigate? They knew the scriptures, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. And that's a danger that we can know God's word, but not, not know God. See, these are they which testify of me, Jesus says in John 5, 39, but you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is the giver of life. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Bible predicted him in a very dark time for the nation of Israel that hope would arrive. This is a great season of hope, isn't it? And our Bible confirms this over and over again, that God came on a rescue mission. It doesn't mean that he doesn't discipline. It doesn't mean that he doesn't let us live with consequences, but it means he delights in unchanging love and hope. Father, as we get ready to come to your table and we get ready to enjoy some uh, reminders of the Lamb who would be pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, shed his blood and die for my sin, but rise from the dead and go to your right hand. I thank you so much for him. Thank you for that little babe in the straw who came on that rescue mission. God with us. Thank you that you're with us. You're for us and you're not against us. You delight in unchanging love. You're the God of hope. I pray that you would renew hope in your saints today. If you don't know this God of hope, I would encourage you to cry out to him. Just say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Thank you for rising. Be my God, my Lord, my Savior, my King. If maybe you've been away from the Lord for a while, something this simple, Lord, I just give you my heart again. I want to walk with you. I repent of my idols, the things that I put above you or alongside you. I want to draw close to you this Christmas season. Please cleanse me, forgive me, and renew my heart. 
And Father, for this wonderful congregation, trying to fight the good fight each and every day, would you bless them? Would you minister in a special way to them as they take the elements and remember our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.